Music Radio, and this is Rodney Trojan welcoming you to this week's edition of People of Note. Now, I'm sure you know about St. Luke's Hospice, which is a famous institution here in Cape Town. St. Luke's combined hospices provide palliative care to people diagnosed with terminal illness and or facing the end of life, and they fulfill the roles of medical, social work, spiritual care, and bereavement care. And they operate from eight community day hospices throughout the Cape Peninsula. Their home base really is in Kenworth. Well, the Chief Executive Officer of St. Luke's is Ronita Mahilal, and she is my guest in the studio today. And Ronita, welcome, welcome. I'm most intrigued to find out a little bit more about St. Luke's. For example, how long has it been there? Because it seems to have been there forever. Thank you so much for having me, Rodney. Um, absolutely. So it's quite an iconic hospice. Mm-hmm. We've been uh, in existence for 40 years. Is in it fact, really that long? It gosh. is, yeah. On the 13th of August, actually, was 40 years. And then on Sunday the 16th, we had a online celebration, um, pretty much just showcasing what we've done in the last 40 years. It started off very humble beginnings, as most iconic uh, institutions start off as. Um, and it's grown now into a really big um, uh, significantly outreaching into lots of communities, as you said earlier. And we have a cohort of a staff, over 200. My goodness. And close on to 200 volunteers. Um, yeah, and we reach about, on average, per day, um, 531 uh, terminally ill patients. Um, and we have a home-based care program that cares for about 300 patients who are chronically ill. So it's quite a significant uh, work that we do, important work, and I think staggering work in the sense that there's so many people who are actually dying, you know, and oftentimes it's mostly um, because of cancer, but more and more we're seeing motor neuron uh, illnesses, we're seeing um, uh, end-stage renal failure, uh, end-stage cardiac failure. So it's those kind of complexities that the team deal with. And now you also have to deal with COVID, which must affect, especially because it famously affects elderly people or people who have comorbidities. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And I think also it's an interesting you say elderly people. More and more we see younger people really? come to the hospice, you know, and they are terminally ill, you know, as young as in their 20s. From what sort of illnesses? Um, you know, essentially cancer. Mm. Yeah, that would be the ones. You know, it's really heart-wrenching when a young mom comes in and her two or three kids are there and, you know, she's actively dying and what do you say to little kids who Mm. are watching that Um, yeah but just getting back to COVID you know that has kind of put us all on the back foot in the sense none of us have ever lived through this Um, and we've had to be very creative and innovative to try and um, navigate this Um, And I think for us, the biggest challenge was like an NGO, you don't normally have money sitting around to buy PPE, you know. So and and having said that, you can't then expose your staff, the clinical team out in the community, if they're not adequately uh, protected. So we had to, you know, ensure that we had full PPE for our staff, and they are so important because they are our frontline workers. So we had to get them uh, fully, you know, uh, togged in the right uh, uh, PPE. And with patients who couldn't then go out and work, 
um, you know, we had to then provide them for food with food and basic uh, toiletries that one wouldn't really think of, but those are the necessities of life. So it just added a different complex complexity to the approach of the work that we do. Um, and also hospices are not designed such where we could easily quarantine patients. It's not like uh, in, a, in a hospital where there's so many wards and so many beds. So we had to navigate that very, very carefully as well. Um, developing partnerships or stronger partnerships with the Department of Health, trying to get the um, test kits done. Uh, sorry, access the test kits and our doctors had to administer those. Um, and yeah, I think, you know, uh, I'm very proud with the way we handled it. Um, and it's ongoing, isn't it? That's yeah, thing. and I think, you know, the sad part of it is that when we now hear, oh, there's a patient who's positive or a staff member is positive, the panic that we felt initially is completely gone. Oh, it's yeah. now become like routine. Ah, okay, so protocols kick in, let's move, you yes. know, which is interesting because it's almost become like a part of life. Very much so, yeah. very much so. Yeah. And I mentioned the sort of headquarters really there in Kenilworth and that yeah. rather well, looks like a very grand house. And how many, is that quite a big facility? Is that your, how many people can you have there? Yeah, sure. So that's the, the White House. Oh, is that what you call <laughs> That's it? the yes. White House. Um, yeah, it's so in that building, it's really huge. You know, we've got uh, a 20 bed facility. Um, but only 10 beds are currently operationalized, and that's purely because we don't have the funds to open the other 10 beds. So the paradox of the whole thing is we've got a facility uh, and there's a need, but we just can't fill it because we don't have the finances for that. But the 10 beds that are operational are always, you know, full. Um, and patients can come in for a two-week period, uh, and it's for pain control, uh, terminal illness, you know, diagnosis, and they're actively dying. And the third category of patients who would come in are for respite care. It's pretty taxing on a family to watch their loved one in pain and just, you know, um, not being able to be the person that they were. And, uh, and and caring for someone with a terminal illness is a 24-7 uh, job. So sometimes families need to go out and just get basic stuff and just need a reprieve from the whole trauma of the mm, whole absolutely. situation. So we then take those patients in. But uh, And then, of course, the rest of the team are there, which are the, um, the finance team, uh, the admin team, my office is there as well, and the operations team are there, human resources is there. So the, big, the larger part of the organization is housed at Kenilworth. Okay. Well, let's have a music break, Ronita, sure. and see what you've chosen. Then we'll get back to talking about this extraordinary operation, St. Luke's Hospice. What's your first piece of music? It's from the movie Pretty Woman, and it's It Must Have Been Love by Roxette. It's special for me because it was the year we got married. My husband and I got married, and it was just the movie came out, and it was just special.
Music there from the film Pretty Woman. It must have been Love by Roxette. And it was the first choice of my guest on this week's edition of People of Note, who is Ronita Mahilal, the Chief Executive Officer of St. Luke's Combined Hospices. And we're talking about this extraordinary operation. And you mentioned actively dying. I think people assume that if you go into hospice, that's sort of it, that you die. But as you say, people go there sometimes for a break but then do leave hospice. So it doesn't mean that everyone that goes in is necessarily going to die. Absolutely. I think 60% of the patients who come in, last time I checked, uh, would go back home um, and they would die at home. So mm-hmm. I think they, we must not mistake that they would come to a hospice and they get cured, you know, because there is a terminal diagnosis. Yes. There's nothing that could change that. But it doesn't mean if you come to a hospice into the inpatient unit that you will die there. People do go back home and, and pass on. Okay. And as a result of that, not to get too um, depressing here, you mentioned bereavement care. Mm -hmm. So you help the families as well who've lost someone. And is the person dying also given, I don't know, therapy or something? Yeah, no, absolutely. So I think just let me talk you through what palliative care means, Mm, because that's end of life care. And the medical term is palliative care. And there are four pillars to palliative care, which is the medical pillar that looks at intervention provided by the medical doctor and the nurses. Um, and, you know, that's uh, that's pretty documented well, and there's a whole program that the doctors and the nurses do. Then the second component is the psychosocial aspect of it, which uh, essentially are social workers um, providing psychosocial care. And then there's spiritual care. So oftentimes when people are, you know, terminally ill, the, the, the immediate question is, why me? What have I done? Why has this happened to me? And some people, uh, you know, want to reach out to an entity that some call God or source or energy. And we help with that uh, reaching out. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the third, the fourth part of palliative care is bereavement. And, uh, you know, the, the concept of palliative care through us and most hospices in South Africa is to look at the patient holistically. So you don't divorce the medical side of the diagnosis to the detriment of the psychosocial side of it. So that is why there's an interdisciplinary team of those four um, disciplines that uh, manage the patient. Obviously, uh, you know, if someone's in pain, we're going to take a break with the psychosocial or the spiritual side of it. But the aim is to provide a holistic service. And it's not only to the patient. If anything, it's perhaps more to the family who need to cope with what is going on. With regard to bereavement, we stay on with the family at least 13 months after the patient has passed on. 13 months? Yeah. And the reason for that is to help the family with anniversaries and milestones that ordinarily the loved one would have been a part of. Um, And so we just help the family get over that. You know, you never get over a death, but at least we help them to come to terms with it Mm. and to navigate those emotions that well up when there's uh, an anniversary. And how do you do that? Do they come in to you or do you have workers that go out to them, to the family? Mm -hmm. Well, I think, you know, uh, let's talk pre-COVID. So (laughs) pre-COVID, it was pretty easy. Um, We would, you know, go home or reach out telephonically at some times, but mostly the face-to-face, one-on-one contact. But I think, you know, post-COVID and, uh, well, during and post-COVID, we just need to look at the new way of of managing these uh, kind of uh, interactions. 
Um, telehealth and telemedicine is now very in the forefront of the way we manage things. It doesn't mean the face-to-face won't happen, but obviously we've got to just you know triage these uh, these interactions and make sure that if we can do it via telephone, it's perhaps better for prevention of dual uh, infection, obviously. Of um, and I think we're trying to use technology because it's there and we need to use it now more actively than we have been and more creatively than we have been. And so the aim is to have video calls and to, um, you know, also to do little video clips so families at home don't have to panic when someone's, for example, coughing and, you know, perhaps even like choking. And we could perhaps do little videos to show them how to position the patient or turn a patient at home. So that's the aim of what COVID has taught us. Mm-hmm. And we're trying to reach uh, our patients without losing that one-on-one touch. But it's, um, yeah, it's quite challenging, I have to say. I'm sure it's very challenging. And it must be people like you uh, must have to be fairly strong emotionally. We're all emotional people because you are living with these very ill, bereaved, dying people all your working day. Mm-hmm. No, that's absolutely true. You know, I'm, I must say I'm perhaps one step away from it, but with the core team, the clinical team that are looking at patients literally day in and day out, mm. you know, they there are, aren't enough words uh, to commend them and our extremely dedicated volunteers, um, you know, who just do this with a smile and with such compassion and with such passion. Um, and you know, it's the the responses we get from the families and the love we get from them is really, uh, you know, a testament for the to the team. They mm. are exceptional and makes it worthwhile. Absolutely. Just uh, briefly, how big is the team in a place like, say, Kenilworth? Um, well, overall, it's as I said, we had just over two hundred staff. Oh, yeah, right. but I think you know, at any given time, not everyone's at the office yes. because most of the work is out in the community. Um, and we do have a cohort of a larger team in in Kailicha, uh, where we have a multi drug resistant TB unit called Lizo Nobanda. And uh, on the other side of the project, we have a home-based care program, which we have partnered with the Department of Health, and we go out and provide care to chronically ill patients. So those are not terminally ill, but they are chronically ill patients. Okay. Well, now let's have another piece of music. Okay. <laughs> What's next, Renita? Yeah, it's uh, Whitney Houston's I Will Always Love You, and that was my late son's favorite, favorite song. So it's in memory of my boy, Perez. If I should stay, I would only be in your way, so I'll go, but I know. I'll think of you every step of the way. And I
memories That is all I'm taking with me So goodbye Please don't cry We both know I'm not what you You need And I Will always Love you Will always Love Houston there, that song was called I Will Always Love You and another choice of my guests on this week's edition of People of Note here on Fine Music Radio, Ronita Mahilal, who is the Chief Executive Officer of St. Luke's Combined Hospice and fascinating work they do as well. And I mean fascinating because, as you say, you're dealing with people who are chronically ill, terminally ill and also with bereavement, but it must 
hit home. So, I mean, you said your late son. You've you've had to deal with bereavement, haven't you, on two occasions? I have. Um, it's, yeah, I lost my husband, uh, the most amazing husband, in February 2007 of a sudden heart attack. With no warning? Absolutely no warning. And Rex was super vigilant about his health, so it was quite something. And then five months later, I lost my son, Perez. He was my eldest, and he was born with Down syndrome. Um, and yeah, so he passed away. So that year was a blur. And, uh, you know, I, I think working at a hospice helps me also, uh, you know, almost empathize mm. with families that have gone through losses. Mm. Um, and I think everyone's loss is different and everyone deals with their loss differently. But it just kind of gives you a greater empathy for people that are going through mm. uh, what they are currently going through. You can process through. it sort of in a sense, can't you, and help absolutely. them process it. Yeah, absolutely. But then, Ronita, what about your background? How did you get into this sort of, well, line of work, <laughs> to put it plainly? <laughs> uh, my background is social work. So uh, okay. I've been practicing as a social worker. And then, you know, the, the whole journey in my career changed a bit. Stayed home and had the kids. And then I worked, and uh, so I'm from KwaZulu-Natal in Durban, um, and I worked for the KwaZulu-Natal Blind and Deaf Society. And then my last job was at St. Mary's Hospital as the director of the outreach project that we had. I was there for 14 years, oh, and nice. uh, <laughs> and I came to Cape Town in late 2016. Um, and yeah, I, I, you know, I've always been in clinical settings as a social worker. And I think with Perez and his Down syndrome, it gave me an interest in disability. Um, and, and I think that was a natural progression of my career pathing. And I'm super happy to be at St. Luke's. And what attracted you to social work in the first place? Do you know, if you think right back, was this, for example, when you were still at school that you started experiencing an interest in this life? Um, I think by default, I just became the person people went to. Um, and, and yeah, you know, it kind of evolved, I think. Mm. But my passion was to be a journalist, believe it oh, or not. Really? <laughs> and uh, my dad fought me super hard because he, and I wanted to be an international journalist. And he said, there's no way. And, you know, so, and I think it was more because of apartheid. And yeah. so he fought me hard and I fought back. Of course, he won. <laughs> <laughs> and but, Just as well by the sounds of things. Yeah, totally, yeah. totally. Um, so, yeah, and I'm super happy with my career choice. And I think dads and moms know best. You said you were at St. Mary's then in Durban, is it? Yes. Uh, for 14 years. Yes. Why did you come to Cape Town to hospice? Um, well, you know, after my um, Rex my, and Perez, my husband and my son passed on, um, my focus was just getting my two daughters, Kiara and Eurisa, just out of school and, you know, into university. Um, and Kiara chose to come to UCT. And Eurisa followed her, and now, and when both the girls were here, they decided Cape Town is home, and mm -hmm. one would never blame them for that. It's such a beautiful <laughs> city. Um, yeah, and then I decided to join the girls, and it was perhaps the best mood I've made. Mm -hmm. And um, how did you get to St. Luke's? Was it an advertised post? Was it word of mouth? Was it something you desperately wanted, or did it just happen? Oh, no, no. Um, it was actually I had applied for the position of a fundraising manager because fundraising is also something I enjoy doing. Um, and I was interviewed for the position and told, uh, unfortunately, you were not successful. And I was horrified. How dare they not want me? <laughs> <laughs> yes. um, uh, but uh, they did have a position for the CEO because the outgoing CEO uh, was retiring. Um, and, yeah, and that's how I got the job. And what did you think when they offered the CEO? I mean, that's quite different, isn't it? 
Um, it is and it isn't because in my previous job, although I was the director, I also did the fundraising. So I kind of saw the synergies between the two positions. Mm-hmm. And I think, yeah, I'm enjoying it. And you know, I really don't see the difference. <laughs> <laughs> Are you, as slightly earlier, you said you sort of a one step away from the actual ill people yeah. because you're an administrator at the moment, really, aren't you? Yeah. But you must still have quite a lot to do with the the atmosphere and aura of a place like St. Luke's. Oh, absolutely. You know, I uh, I enjoy the one-on-one contact and every opportunity I get, I, I really like to get involved. Mm-hmm. Um, but oftentimes I am, you know, not able to for obvious reasons. Um, and it's also now difficult for us to go into the ward because we've had to separate the organizations so that we don't cross-infect each other. Yeah. Um, so, but I used to really enjoy doing that, but I am getting involved through my, I'm doing my studies, my PhD, and I'm looking at spiritual care within a hospice palliative care setting in South Africa. So that's given me an opportunity to get back into the ground or at the grassroots level and engage with uh, the hospices and the colleagues who are there. Mm-hmm. We've got an amazing team of spiritual care workers, probably the largest in South Africa. And the work they do, you know, there are really no words to quite say the extent and the outreach of the work that they do. This spiritual work or these spiritual workers, Mm -hmm. it is multi-denominational, like you said earlier. Correct. It could be any religion (laughs) or no religion, but some sort of spiritual belief, in other words. Sure, absolutely. And I think the misconception is religion equals spirituality. It's actually Mm -hmm. not. So religion is part of spirituality. We even have the Baha'i faith represented, a Rastafarian. So there's a lot of people, (laughs) yeah, with, uh, you know, who come in. And some people, you know, who have been extremely strong in one particular faith mm-hmm. and come in and say, you know what, I really think it means nothing now. And then they also feel that I shouldn't be saying those things. Yes, yes. So it's helping them navigate those complexities, which one doesn't think of unless one is on one's deathbed, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, and to have the team navigate that, I think it's phenomenal to watch them work. You know. Well, also you hinted earlier, I think if someone is on their deathbed, mm-hmm. you begin to wonder what's going to happen afterwards. Sure. And is there something and, you know, you read about people being given last rites and mm-hmm. last communion and all that. Um because I suppose it's a, it's a very lonely time uh, for the person who's dying sure. um, and fear of wondering where they're going to go. And mm. is there, in fact, something there? All my life I thought there isn't, for example, mm. they may think. Now suddenly I, I remember a friend who was a broadcaster that happened. He was absolutely anti-religious in any way. But he had priests coming to visit him in his last month mm. um, and was reaching out to something like that. Mm. No, we definitely have that, you know, and I think therefore our team have to be so sensitive mm. to cultural complexities and diversities. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, South Africa, as we say, is the rainbow nation, and we really, really are. Because linguistically, racially, culturally, we are so diverse. And even within diversity, there's diversity. Mm. So we've just got to be very... um, And oftentimes, I think what the spiritual care workers do, as do all the team, is are led by the patient, you know, and the family. Obviously not medically, but in the other aspects. We we know it's patient-centered, and oftentimes the patient leads the care path uh, of their intervention. With you doing this PhD in spiritual care, mm-hmm. what attracted you to that particular pillar of this whole palliative care thing? Um, I think when I first came to St. Luke's, uh, you know, I was super impressed by the three other pillars, which mm. is, you know, as I said, medical, psychosocial and bereavement. And I was equally impressed by the spiritual care pillar 
However, it wasn't something that had the recognition that the other three pillars had. And I remember uh, challenging my executive team and then saying to the guys, one of you has got to better study this fast, you know. And mm. they're like, no, thanks, <laughs> um, because they were also doing other stuff. So I just said, you know, we need to bring this in the forefront of everyone's uh, vision. Right now, you know, it's in the periphery of people's vision. I think it needed to be brought in the forefront of it. Um, and it also coincided with the National Policy on Palliative Care, the Strategic Plan on Palliative, palliative Care that was just passed in late 2017. And I thought the time was ripe um, for, palli- for spiritual care to get that recognition. And, and so I challenged myself. <laughs> okay. And it is quite a challenge to do it a PhD, is. I'm sure. Okay, Renita, let's have another piece of music. Girls Like You. Yes. So this is a remix, and it's Girls Like You versus Dam Dara Dam. It's an Indian remix and an English remix. And I like it just because it's very beaty. Okay. <laughs> Spent 24 hours, I need more hours with you. You spend the weekend getting even new. We spend the late nights making things right between us. But now it's all good, baby. Roll that backward, baby. And play me close. Cause girls like you run around with guys like me. Son, now when I come through, I need a girl like you. Yeah, yeah. Girls like you love funny at me.
Well, now, that was called Girls Like You versus Dam Damara. Just explain a bit about what we've just heard, Ranita. Honestly, I don't know the significance of the words of the Indian words, although I do <laughs> know a little bit about Hindi. But I just like it because, as I said, you know, it's got a real it's nice a beat. beat to it. And one, even if one is in a really, mel- like a really sad mood, that kind of just brings you up. Okay. <laughs> Ronita Mahilal is my guest. Ronita is the Chief Executive Officer at St. Luke's Combined Hospices. And I, there must be many times where you need cheering up, as indeed your workers, the, the people that work there and who deal with the bereaved people and so on, and with a dying person, do they ever get any form of psychological help or therapy because mm. it must run you down over a period of time. Absolutely. And I think we couldn't be more cognizant of that. Mm. You know, uh, a carer is as good as the care they get themselves. And oftentimes when you get nurses, doctors, social workers, spiritual care workers, they are so giving that they forget to look after themselves. So, you know, there's many avenues, um, you know, peer support, which is critical, um, and the face-to-face meetings that we have, although it is work-related, but it does allow you to bounce off uh, certain uh, challenges that you have and to weep a little bit with your colleagues. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we have… Uh, does I- that happen Weeping with your colleagues. It does. It does. You know, in the little teams that they get together with, especially the nursing team and the social work team, you know, often some people say you get sensitized to death and to an extent you do. Um, but there are cases that really get to you, especially if someone's passed on and that person is the age of your daughter or your son. It just does get to you. So, um, you know, they have a little huddle, uh, as one of our colleagues call it. <laughs> and um, as an organization, we have registered for ICAS. Please don't ask me what it stands for. But it is um, a, a sub- an, an external support uh, that you could get tole- telephonic access 24-7. Um, for yourself and your family members at home. If there's any trauma, we, they provide us with group support um, and they would come on site if there was like a, a hijacking or something like mm-hmm. that, mm-hmm. God forbid. So it's, an, it's something the organization pays for for the staff, um, for them to access, as I said, 24-7 at no cost to them. And, and do you watch out on your staff? You see this person is beginning to look a little bit uh, vulnerable. Maybe he or she needs a break. Absolutely. We manage staff's leave really closely. Um, and, and that's, you know, because they are so in touch with their heads of department, um, you, you know, you look at someone, you know, they're looking tired or they're mm. looking super happy today, you know, so you kind yes. of pick up on that. And we manage leave very carefully because we want people to go on leave to rest. Um, and, and yeah, so and we also want them to rest and switch off. Switch off your phone from for St. Luke's, switch off your contacts for St. Luke's because it's always a locum person that would stand in for you. Of course, you can't switch off your caring and your thought about your patients. Mm-hmm. You know, that will always be there. But I think people just, the, the team really need a break away. So we encourage when people go on leave to be fully on leave. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Very wise, I would have thought, to do something like that. And who are these people? What sort of training do they get? Mm-hmm. So I think because palliative care is such a specialized service, 
the team have to have specialized training in palliative care. So our doctors have the diploma in palliative care and all our nurses have had some form of formal training and of course like literally a million years of experience in palliative care. So have the social workers, a small module in social work does teach palliative care and of course a lot of what they learn is uh, through experience and there's lots of um, through our Center for Palliative Learning. So we have a wing at the, at the hospice that focuses on education and training. So we have courses that we teach and our team go through those courses as well. And the volunteers? Absolutely. So we have, as I said, a large cohort of volunteers. Mm. Um, they come through for a volunteer morning. You know, sometimes people want to really give back, but when they come to the hospital and they would realize uh, it may be not for me after they've heard what we do. Some people want to really just come and hold the hand of a patient, and that's not oftentimes possible. We need to be respectful of the fact if someone's actively dying, they literally, you know, really at end stage and they really don't need too many people in their room. So there are other avenues which our volunteers can volunteer at. Um, and they would, depending on which category of work they are involved with, they would get that kind of uh, training. Perhaps not super formally, but, you know, like you orientated to that. Mm-hmm. Like we have charity shops and volunteers work there. And they obviously get shown the ropes by the manager of the shop. What an organization it must be. So many branches, so many fields of hospice I'm learning about in this interview. But let's have another piece of music. What have you got for us this time? Um, it's A.R. Raymond, Pussycat Dolls, and the, the song is called J-Ho. And again, also a lot, lot of beat, a lot of energy. <laughs> so yeah, it kind of uplifts the spirits.
That was the Pussycat Dolls. Uh, the song J-Ho. As I said, it's very, um, it's also like a remix. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it just is very significant of the greatness of India. You know, I'm Indian. Of uh, Well, I'm Indian living in South Africa, but born in South Africa. Yes. And uh, so, yeah, it resonates well. You said me. you were Hindu. I'm Hindu. Yeah. And so you speak the language as well, I do. You? I speak Hindi. Actually, we come from a very similar part of Natal, you and me, because um, I lived in, well, that's where I was born and brought up. But um, back to business, Renita Mahlel is my guest, the Chief Executive Officer of St. Luke's. And we've learned a lot about St. Luke's and the extraordinary operation. And a question that I have to ask you, Mm -hmm. and I know that you would like me to ask this question because you said that you are a fundraiser, (laughs) one of your passions. I presume you need lots of money. I mean, how do you get money to run this place? Um, I think earlier I said we are an NGO, a non-governmental organization. So that means by definition that we rely on public funds and public generosity to support the work that we do. For this financial year, we need to raise 47 million rands. 47 million rands. 47 million rands. Average is that what you do? Um, well, this for this financial year, yes. Last mm. year it was forty-five million rand, so it kind of obviously goes up every year, and we need to raise that, and we rely significantly on the local and the international donor market and the generosity of people uh, for us to be self-sustained. We also don't always go with a you know a begging hat in hand. Um, We've got self-sustaining projects that you know generate an income, so it's it's quite attractive to show a potential donor that you're not reliant on him or her a hundred percent, that you've done something to better your um, your income uh, as an organisation. So we have our charity shops, um, which we lease properties all over and we you know make an appeal to the public to donate any of their pre-loved goodies um, from anything from clothes to um, 
you know, dishes to uh, books, appliances, bric-a-brac, furniture. And we would even come home and pick it up. It then gets taken to our distribution center where we clean it, we categorize it, we price it, and then it gets sent to the different shops. So that's a very, um, you know, creative and self-sustaining way of generating an income. And then on the premises where the hospice is, it is a large property. We have the life right uh, building there. And the, um, you know, so that generates an income that comes into the operations. So that's how we're able to sustain the project. Um, and, you know, we've got day hospices all over the precinct of Cape Town. We've got eight in total. Unfortunately, not all are not all are currently functioning because we had to decant services because Department of Health took it over for COVID patients. But when it was operational, then we had the day hospices functioning, providing care for the patients who would come there uh, on a daily basis uh, once a week and the interdisciplinary team would go there. But part of the work that the day hospice committee members who are volunteers do is fundraising. So they have, you know, um, golf um, sessions um, and they have like high teas and they have charity shops of their own. And that's how they're able to generate income. And then the significant way of doing it also is tuning with, you know, uh, for example, universities uh, internationally and even locally. We have a program with the UCT, with Stellenbosch, with uh, CPUT and uh, UWC. And, you know, students come and do rotations at our hospice. And in that way, we are able to obviously charge for that. Um, and that's, so that's another creative way of doing it, but also tuning with universities overseas. They would like to learn what happens in a third world country. Believe it or not, Cape Town is third world. <laughs> <laughs> and they would like to come over and do a stint with us. And at some point for us to go over and provide the expertise uh, in a multidisciplinary team approach within a culturally diverse South Africa. Um, and we are able to take that across to their people. And that's the aim. Mm-hmm. And in that way, you know, we would exchange euros and dollars, which is <laughs> <laughs> very useful. Very, very useful. useful. Um, is St. Luke's Hospice just Cape Town based or is it national? So St. Luke's is definitely Cape Town based, but nationally there are about 104 hospices in South Africa, but all are independent entities. Um, but because we're doing such specialized work, like in the Western Cape, all the hospices get together uh, just to, um, you know, uh, provide support to each other and to be there for each other. And it's formalized through uh, 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 an association. Mm-hmm. Ronita, as I said, it's been fascinating talking to you. We have to end it now with your last piece of music coming up. But um, if people have been interested, moved, affected by what you've been saying, how best would they find out more about you Is or be able to donate, for example? Is there a website or what would you suggest? Sure. So we have a website. It's www.stlukes. So it's S-T-L-U-K-E-S dot C-O dot Z-A. I'll say that again. www dot S-T-L-U-K-E-S dot C-O dot Z-A and they could call us on 021-797-5335. Well, there you are. All very beautifully and clearly said, Ronita. Thank you for 
um, a fascinating chat and all strength to your arm for an extraordinary job that you're doing and your volunteers and staff as well. Thank you so much for having me and it's been an honor. Thank you. And now what's your last piece of music? What I'm, do we play you out with? We're playing me out with Pritam Chakravati, who's an excellent uh, music director. And his song is the, the song I love a lot is called Boulier. And why do I love it? It just reminds me of happy times. <laughs> Which are important on day. Absolutely. Thank you, Ronita Mahilal, the Chief Executive Officer of St. Luke's Combined Hospices. लेकिन सुकून का जजीरा मिल न पाए वे की करा वे की करा एक बार को तजल्ली तो दिखा दे झूठी सही मगर तसल्ली तो दिला दे वे की करा वे की करा राधन दयार पुकार बुलेया तू ही तो यार बुलेया मुर्शिद मेरा तेरा मुकाम कमले सरहद के पार बुलेया परवर दिगार बुलेया हाफिज तेरा राजन तैयार बुलेया सुन ले पुकार बुलेया तू ही तो यार बुलेया मुर्शिद मेरा मुर्शिद मेरा कमले सरहद के पार बुलेया परवर दिगार बुलेया हाफिज तेरा मुर्शिद मेरा तितली की तरह मुहाजिर हूँ एक पल को ठहरूं पल में उड़ जाऊं वे मैं था हूँ पगडंडी लबदी है जो राह जन्नत की तू मुड़े जा मैं साथ मुड़ जाऊं तेरे कारवां में शामिल होना चाहूं कमियां तराश के मैं काबिल होना चाहूं वेकी करां वेकी करां राजन दयार बुलेया सुन ले पुकार बुलेया तू ही तो यार बुलेया मुर्शिद मेरा तेरा मुकाम कमले सरहद के पार सौ अंधेरों में भी रोशन हूँ उस हकीकत की तलाश है तेरी दहलीज पे छोड़ाए उस मोहब्बत की तलाश है झुकने की इबादत को तो समझे जहाँ वालों कटने पे जो हासिल हो उस जन्नत की तलाश है जिस दिन से आशना से दो भी हुए हैं तन्हाइयों के लम्हे सब मुलता भी हुए क्यों आज मैं मोहब्बत फिर एक बार करना चाहूं ये दिल तो ढूंढता है इनकार के बाने 
लेकिन ये जिसम कोई पाबंदियां न माने मिलके तुझे बगावत खुद से ही यार करना के पार